This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, the only way is up for interest rates. The Reserve Bank hikes the cash rate target by one quarter of a percent and signals it's just the start. So repayments for borrowers on a variable rate will go up before the election, making for some tough decisions on household budgets. It's a bit like you're shell-shocked. And the uncertainty, it really just creates such a huge uncertainty as to where will this go, where will it end. That's my visceral reaction to this whole thing, is it's all about the rich getting richer, particularly the banks. And an extraordinary leak from within the United States Supreme Court. A draft ruling would quash the constitutional right to abortion. Along with what this means constitutionally and what this means for women's health and what this means for the standing of the court, I'm afraid that this means more disruption in American civil rights. Welcome to the program. Mortgage costs are set to rise after today's decision by the Reserve Bank to hike interest rates for the first time in almost 11 years. And it's quickly become fuel for both major parties campaigning for votes. More on that ahead. The RBA, though, has ignored the fact that it's mid-campaign, raising the cash rate by 0.25%, taking it to 0.35%. That is still very low historically, but there's more to come, the bank warns, as it tries to rein in inflation. Announcing the decision this afternoon, the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe was asked about his now-abandoned guidance that rates would not rise until 2024. I know it's coming as a shock to many people, but it's, it's a testimony to the resilience of the economy and the fact that more Australians have jobs today than ever before. I think the other thing, um, the other point I would make, is that Australians have understood that interest rates would go up at some point. Philip Lowe there. Well, our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan, has been listening in to today's events. He's here with us. Uh, Pete, a rate rise was widely expected, though some commentators thought the bank might wait for more information. What's the justification from the RBA board for moving now and why 0.25%? Well, good evening, uh, Linda. That move to 0.35% on the cash rate was a a real surprise. Uh, Moving up by 0.25% or 25 basis points is actually a a bit of an unusual amount, Um, but it could be seen as an admission that the Reserve Bank uh, is behind the curve uh, when it comes to reining in the inflation dragon. So that supersized move uh, is confirmation that the Reserve Bank will probably uh, decide to do what it takes to bring inflation down. Expectations now are that the cash rate uh, could rise to 1.5% by the end of the year, maybe 2% by mid-next year. And uh, there are some big challenges ahead. We're already seeing uh, 5.1% annual inflation in the first quarter of this year, the real catalyst uh, for today's decision. The RBA, though, thinks headline inflation could hit 6% before it starts coming down. And that takes us to the final paragraph of the RBA statement that the board is committed to, quote, doing what is necessary to bring inflation uh, back into that 2 to 3% target band. And importantly, 
recently, quote, that this will require more rate rises down the track. I suppose just where it will stop is unclear. Now, Philip Lowe held a rare press conference at the RBA headquarters in Sydney's Martin Place, where, as you said, he acknowledged that 2024 low rates guidance uh, was probably superseded beyond his expectations. But not surprisingly, the first question was about perceptions about the RBA's independence from government. And he said forcefully that the election had nothing to do with the decision that the board acted in the best interests of the economy and ignored the politics. The election has no influence at all on today's decision. Uh, the Reserve Bank has given, been given a mandate by Parliament that is to achieve uh, price stability, full employment and to promote the economic welfare of the Australian people. We have operational independence and it's testimony to the political culture in Australia that, that independence is respected. We take our decisions in the best interests of the country and that's what we always do and that's what we did today and we do that without any interference from politics and we don't take the political situation into account. We do what we think is right for the country. Philip Lowe there. Um, Pete, the cash rate target is now 0.35%. What kind of variable rate would people generally be paying now and what does that rise mean in dollar terms for the average borrower? Well, it's still possible to get a variable rate mortgage for, you know, 25 to 3%. I'd have to say that that's a long way from the 17.5% in the 1990s. But if passed on by banks in full, the rate rise will add around $65 a month to repayments on a, an average uh, $500,000 mortgage over 25 years, but double that on a million-dollar loan. And the move probably was a bit of a surprise, a little surprise to financial traders who are actually actually um, pricing in a two-thirds probability of the RBA raising rates this month. So uh, markets are pretty much pricing in the virtual certainty of another rise in June that would take the cash rate to 0.5%. Now, rising interest rates are an impost to anyone repaying a mortgage on a variable rate. So how does causing more financial pain on those borrowers work in the economy's favour? Well, it should be said that the Reserve Bank's decision isn't about trying to calibrate uh, the housing market but the broader economy, though obviously home borrowers will be hurt, um, particularly those who've uh, leveraged right at the top of the market. But getting inflation under control is critical given that runaway inflation is damaging across the entire economy. Uh, These higher rates will uh, cool spending. Well, the RBA is hoping that anyway. Households will trim their budgets because of the higher loan repayments and reduce the demand pressures as households make hard decisions. Now, it is very harsh medicine and hard medicine, given that we have a generation here in Australia who haven't experienced a rate rise pretty much. But the reality is unless inflation comes back under control, there will be more rates pain, uh, given what we're seeing in the United States, for example, where there's um, seen to be quite an aggressive rate rise coming up in the coming days. And, of course, a big factor here is ultimately easing the supply blockages that have been caused by the pandemic. Okay, thanks very much, Peter Ryan, our senior business correspondent there on the rate rise announced by the Reserve Bank today. Well, those rate rises that will flow through the system inevitably mean some uncertainty and some hardship expected for some mortgage borrowers on variable interest rates. John Daly spoke to one Melbourne borrower who was watching the rate announcement. He prepared this report. 
Hi, this is Alan. Hi, Alan. It's John from the ABC. Um, just calling to uh, listen into the RBA's decision. Are you ready? I'm ready, John. So we are standing by for the RBA to hand down its... Alan Marson is just one of the borrowers in Australia nervous about their financial future. Yeah, Roz, the uh, Reserve Bank boards uh, increased the cash rate by 25 basis points to 35 basis points. So that's quite a surprise. As we were saying, Reactions to that? It's a bit like you're shell-shocked. And the uncertainty, it really just creates such a huge uncertainty as to where will this go, where will it end. That's my visceral reaction to this whole thing is it's all about the rich getting richer, particularly the banks. Alan Marson bought a new place in Melbourne's outer suburbs late last year. He's left reeling from predictions the cash rate will rise above 2% in the next few years. There's no certainty in this for me that now it's on the upward trajectory. Is, is it just a matter of time before I can't afford to own my home? And what situation are you in, Alan? What, what's your personal circumstance with your mortgage and your home ownership? Having gone through a divorce and now bought a, a house on my own with a, a $700,000 loan. So you're, you're very exposed to, to any movements in the cash rate? Uh, well, it's not a million dollar loan, but it's pretty exposed, isn't it? Yeah. And so one income, one loan, one house. Mortgage brokers are warning many more Australians could face financial hardship as a result of rising interest rates. In a survey done by the Finance Brokers Association of Australia late last year, more than half of respondents said they could not afford a $300 per month increase to repayments, which is on the cards if the cash rate target reaches 1%. The association's managing director, Peter White, says banks need to stop and think before moving on interest rates. Banks do need to pause and consider their decisions that can make at these times and as over the coming months as well because it's going to have a significant impact on uh, home loan borrowers right across the country and as well as those that pay rent because generally they're sitting behind that is a uh, investor who's got a debt with the bank and if their repayments go up, well, guess who's going to wear the brunt of that? The poor old renter. But not everyone is unhappy. Self-funded retirees who hope to live off interest payments are welcoming rising rates. Daryl Halliday is a retiree in the central Queensland coastal town of Yapoon. You know, it's been some years now that we've been sitting down around the 0.1. It's, it's, you just can't live on that sort of return. So people have had to have their money in different areas. Where have retirees been putting their, their, I guess, their nest egg, their savings to try and earn a bit more interest? Well, some people obviously have stayed in property and other... And um, other people have gone into the share market mainly. The worst thing about being a self-funded retiree is when you can't make a return on your money, you end up you're living on your capital and um, you watch it every year, you know, being worth less and less. It's just going down. Daryl Halliday says money in the bank is a lot less risky than building a stock portfolio. But that's no consolation for borrowers like Alan Marson. It's the opening of the floodgates. So for me, the... the my stomach fell because uh, I just don't know when this roller coaster ride will end. Will it be a soft landing or will it be a very, very hard landing? Melbourne mortgage borrower Alan Marson, John Daly, our reporter there. You're listening to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. More reaction to today's interest rate rise ahead and food relief charities expect more Australians are going to need their help. I've never really needed a handout before, but... Um, yeah, I'm sucking it up and I'm here today because I need to help. I'm a few weeks behind in the mortgage as it is. Uh, if they want to up that on me, it's, it's going um, to be really hard.
Well, the interest rate rise does put a lot of focus on mortgages, but housing is about more than just those who can afford to buy or maybe can't really afford to buy. Finding a rental property is a battle. Tenancies are invariably short term and social housing wait times can be as long as 10 years. A report out today concludes that the rate of home ownership in Australia is rapidly declining, the lifetime cost of a mortgage is skyrocketing, and the least well served are low and fixed income earners. The report was commissioned by the V&F Housing Enterprise Foundation, a philanthropic trust, and the author is Emma Dawson, Executive Director of the Per Capita Think Tank. We spoke earlier. What we find is that all sectors other than very high income earners, really other than people with more than one property, are being poorly served by the current market. Affordability is declining in a uh, private rental market quite significantly in, in the last 12 months after years of rents being relatively stable. Lower income families paying more than 30% of their income on rent or on mortgages. We're seeing uh, significant shortfalls in social housing, public and community housing, uh, and extended wait list now of up to 10 years for social housing um, for people that need it. Uh, and so really, other than uh, people that were in the property market a few, you know, a good 20 years ago, uh, got their foot in the door before the most recent price rises uh, occurred, affordability and quality and appropriateness of housing is declining in terms of the access to a decent home for the, the vast majority of the population and certainly in future uh, for higher numbers than in the past. Just on that point, do you conclude that fewer and fewer Australians over time are going to be able to own a house if we don't change something? We, certain, we certainly do. Generationally, the lifetime cost of serving a mortgage is going up. So if you were a member of the silent generation, born before Second World War, uh, you, you paid about 11% of your lifetime income servicing your mortgage. By Generation X, uh, you know, someone born in, in the 1970s, you're up to paying 25 of your lifetime income servicing that mortgage. And we're going to c continue looking at that trajectory we expect for uh, millennials and, and Gen Z, it will be higher again. So the early baby boomers, by retirement, 85% of them were homeowners. But we expect for people born after 1980, only around 55% of them will be homeowners outright at retirement. So we can see a significant decline there between a couple, uh, three or four generations of 30%. Of, of and if we continue on current trajectory by 2050, a minority of people in their 40s will be homeowners on current trajectory. A minority, goodness. Um, is there a supply mm. issue here? There is. Um, and if we want to tackle housing affordability for everyone, we have to look at all of it. So some of the supply issues we have are a dearth of appropriate homes, uh, affordable homes for low and middle income earners um, within an easy commute of their job, especially key workers. So we saw a lot of developer um, activity in, in our cities over the last few decades, building, for example, a lot of small student-focused apartments for international students, but not a lot of medium density housing that families want and that are affordable for families. And part of the reason for that is restrictions on planning in the inner and middle ring suburbs uh, because established residents don't like it, but there is a middle way. We could do a lot better with planning and supply. You say in the report that a big part of the problem is the financialisation and commodification of housing. What do you mean by that? 
the vast majority of Australia's money, Australia's wealth, is tied up in residential property. It's 60% of retail bank activity in Australia is lending for residential property. It's only 20% in the UK. Mm. By financialising housing and seeing it primarily as an asset and a way to grow wealth, we are cutting out a significant chunk of people from that opportunity, but worse, we're not providing them with a decent home. And in most comparable OECD nations, having a secure home doesn't rely on having to own one. But so many Australians now do rely on their home and maybe an investment property to build any kind of wealth. This is not a cycle that can be broken easily. We need to absolutely start from where we are, right? We can't we can't go back and, and, and change decisions of the past. We can't crash the market. There'll be far too much pain. But what we can do is say, okay, well, let's give people some other options. So if, for example, you're earning a, an average income, you're in your early 30s, you may say, well, I would be better off investing my money in the share market and renting. But the problem is I can't get a lease of more than one year and I'm ready to have children. Mm-hmm. So if we, for example, had big institutional investors in build to rent properties like they do in parts of Europe and America, where you could sign a lease for 10 or 20 years, you could treat the home as your own home, and you could put your money into more productive and more liquid assets that you can more easily access. But we don't provide that rental security. So that's what we're trying to say with this report is there are a whole heap of options we could take if we wanted to address this problem. It's not just about pulling one lever and risking the market crashing and having adverse outcomes. Emma Dawson, good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Linda. Emma Dawson of the Per Capita Think Tank, which focuses on solving inequality. More of that interview at the PM webpage, and I'll tweet the link out as well. Well, how will the election campaign respond to today's rate rise? The government is seeking to defend its economic record in the face of a Labor opposition that is keen to pin at least part of the blame for rate rises on them. Isabel Rowe reports. This was the decision the government expected, but not the one it wanted. Speaking after the RBA's decision, Scott Morrison sought to frame it as an inevitable result of his good economic management. We've steered this country through one of our most difficult times. So at a time like this, as we get close to this election, why risk it? The Prime Minister says his pandemic measures got Australians through hard economic times, in better shape than most other countries, and boosted the economy to a point where he can now offer more cost-of-living relief. We knew about the rising prices that were coming and so as a result of the significant turnaround, as a result of our economic plan in this year's budget, we were able to provide that cost of living relief. For those who have to cop a rate rise on their mortgage repayments, Scott Morrison says he does have sympathy. Of course, for those who will be paying more, that will be harder and we understand that. Are you not pouring kerosene onto an inflation bonfire by providing cost of living relief just before an election? Isn't this making matters worse at exactly the time the RBA is trying to take heat out of the market? I'll I'll let Josh speak to that, Um, but my answer is no. But some economists think that is what the government's cost of living stimulus is doing. Economist Stephen Hamilton from the George Washington University is among those questioning the government's approach. As you come out of the pandemic, as the economy is recovering, the government needs to step back, right? They need to take their foot off the accelerator pedal. They decided to double down and increase that stimulus again in this budget. So on this side of the pandemic, that's sort of indefensible, frankly. 
Labor says it recognises factors outside the government's control contribute to interest rate decisions. But Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers still lays some blame on the Prime Minister. This is a full-blown cost-of-living crisis on Scott Morrison's watch and now interest rate rises are about to be part of the pain. Given rates are meant to rise again, next time it might be under a Labor government. Jim Chalmers insists his economic plan would soften the blow. It's about training people for skills shortages. That's why we've got our policy for free fee-free TAFE. It's about a bigger, more productive workforce. That's why we've got our policy on childcare. The next question for the election campaign is whether voters blame their rising rates on politicians. Married couple Marcella and Wendy are getting close to paying off their mortgage on their home in Western Sydney. But that now seems a bit further away. Well, that is going to take more time to pay it off. And, yeah. yeah, and it's going to impact the, um, the, the pockets of the everyday Australian. How much do you think this is a politics issue or is it a separate issue for you? Well, it always ends in, poli- in politics. It's always politics, but it's not much uh, he can do. If the rate rise means more people have to sell their homes, prices may drop, and that could be good news for those who can't afford to buy. Labor says it could help some of those people with its shared equity scheme by buying up to 40% of the property with someone earning less than $90,000 a year. Finance Minister Simon Birmingham told Sky News Labor's policy could be seen as a death tax. Uh, well, look, it's, it's certainly a situation where inheritances are threatened uh, by the fact that a Labor government uh, would be sitting there at the reading of the will, potentially forcing the sale of the family home. Anthony Albanese has rubbished that, reminding voters the Prime Minister is on the record supporting shared equity schemes. The fact that they have rejected this policy that they have advocated for more than a decade on shared equity. The Coalition prefers its policy, backing young Australians to only pay 5% deposits for a home, reducing it to 2% for single parents. Isabel Rowe with that report. Well, surging inflation is already causing hardship, but the interest rate rise designed to bring inflation down in the longer term could also add to those struggling financially. Hunger relief charity Food Bank is already experiencing its biggest demand yet and is preparing to open its doors to more people doing it tough. Isabel Masali reports. At half past seven this morning, people were already lining up at Food Bank's Perth warehouse and it doesn't open till nine. It's become a regular sight. In the aisles, volunteers greet people who've shopped here for years, but for Robert Dale, it's his first time. Got about three loaves of bread, a few packs of buns. Um, I've got some chicken nuggets. They look great. Yeah, they're actually McDonald's um, nuggets, so or McDonald's chicken pieces. Kids are going to be happy with that. Yeah, the kids are going to love that. He's recently separated with his partner and has full custody of three kids. Work has also been tough. So he's shopping here where a pack of beef mints costs just $3. I've never really needed a handout before, but, um, yeah, I'm sucking it up and I'm here today because I need to help. Self-employed work's been very hard with the COVID situation. Um, yeah, I mean, um, basically borrowing and begging to get by at the moment. So um, I've got a mortgage. I've got bills like everybody else and, um, yeah in Struggle Street. If you have to pay more on your mortgage, what does that mean? 
well, I'm, I'm a few weeks behind in the mortgage as it is. Daniel Perrett is a foster carer to six siblings and works as a delivery driver. He's been shopping here for nine years. And while he's also concerned about paying more on his mortgage, he tries to take it lightly. Puts extra load on, you know, our power bill is $3,000 a quarter. It's a big house, six young people. It's an energy mill. Um, so, yeah, it does. It puts just a... It's unrealistic. But anyway, we just have to carry on and keep on keeping on. Food Bank WA CEO Kate O'Hara says demand for food relief has never been so high since the charity began in the 90s, and they're expecting another spike. Sadly, it has just been escalating. It, is, it has been escalating since pre-COVID, and as COVID hit, it just got worse. The big growth area for us has been the underemployed, people that want to keep their mortgage, people that want to stay in their home. If you're seeing those people already coming through using Food Bank as a way to reduce their costs and help pay their mortgages, what happens next if their mortgage repayments rise? Well, that's the big question, and this is where we're all concerned. Everybody in the um, sector is really concerned about what's going to happen to those households, particularly when you have a state like WA with a real need for more housing and a restricted supply of building materials, which is a huge impact on the builders. But she stresses the food relief charity is prepared to help more people across the country. Dr Christina Pollard is from Curtin University and has studied food insecurity and food stress. She says when the cost of accommodation rises, people cut corners to reduce their spending. Now, food is somewhere that you can do that and often people will buy cheaper food first and that's usually um, quite often less nutritious. A lot of the people that I come in contact with who are food insecure um, don't purchase meat routinely. They rely on um, things to feed their families like two-minute noodles and things like that. These, you know, consistently, routinely having a diet like this impacts your diet quality and that impacts your health in the long term. She's urged people not to be shy to seek support and seek it early, whether it be from financial counsellors or charities. Isabel Musali with that report. Well, the battle over women's bodies and abortion rights in the United States dramatically escalated today after the apparent leak of a draft Supreme Court judgment indicating the landmark abortion judgment in Roe v Wade will be overturned. The justices in the 1973 case decided the US Constitution does protect a woman's, a pregnant woman's right to choose to have an abortion. But the draft has alarmed many, coming amid a concerted bid by some US states to undermine the right as well. Samantha Donovan prepared this report. Protesters, both for and against abortion, descended on the US Supreme Court after the media outlet Politico published what it says is a leaked initial draft majority decision, striking down the judgment in Roe versus Wade. In it, the Conservative Justice Samuel Alito is said to have ruled that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Dr Leslie Russell is with the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at Sydney Uni. She worked in the US for many years, including as a senior policy advisor to the US Surgeon General during the Obama administration. She says while the draft opinion itself may not be a surprise, its leaking is a shock. Someone fairly high up inside the Supreme Court is obviously extremely angry and extremely concerned. 
the women who will be most affected are poor women and women of colour, women who don't have ready access to healthcare services. So if Roe v Wade is overturned, how will access to abortion in the US change? Dr Prudence Flowers is a senior lecturer at Flinders University. It will mean that abortion rights and access become really kind of subject to a geographical lottery. Abortion in this judgment would be returned to the individual states to regulate. So it's estimated that there are about 26 states that are seen as likely to to completely ban abortion or almost completely ban abortion. About 13 of those states already have so-called trigger laws on the books, which are waiting for a worthy way to be overturned. So they would just ban abortion as soon as this is handed down. And there are about 16 states uh, plus the District of Columbia that have laws that protect abortion rights. So abortion would still be accessible in the United States. It would just be determined by geography and also by financial means. Um, if you can afford to travel, then you would be able to access abortion even if you were in a southern or a midwestern state that banned abortion. Why is the issue of abortion so partisan in the United States? Uh, in the late 1970s, certain conservatives within the Republican Party, um, most notably President Ronald Reagan, essentially make abortion part of a broader sort of agenda of the culture wars. Abortion in some ways becomes a, a partisan tool in the United States in a way that has not happened in other equivalent Western democracies. So since 1980, the Republican Party has explicitly framed itself as the quote-unquote party of life, and they call the Democrats the party of death. So in some ways, it serves a, um, a really important political mobilising tool for Republicans because it speaks to certain parts of their base, people who tend to be of a conservative religious disposition. Dr Flowers, do you think if Roe v Wade is overturned that the conservative justices of the US Supreme Court will then turn their attention to other prominent issues? Yes. Roe v Wade was decided using the language of a right to privacy. Um, and that right to privacy, which was first articulated in the 1960s, relates to things like access to contraception. Uh, it also relates to things like sexual acts such as sodomy. I think that if Roe is overturned, then the right to privacy itself becomes subject to relitigation. I also think that it seems almost inevitable that the conservative justices would want to revisit the issue of same-sex marriage. I, I think that overturning Roe v. Wade is a beginning, it's not an end. Dr Leslie Russell thinks the possible overturning of Roe v Wade and the purported leaking of the draft judgment may create further instability in US society. Along with what this means constitutionally and what this means for women's health and what this means for the standing of the court, I'm afraid that this means more disruption in American civil rights. Dr Leslie Russell from Sydney University, Samantha Donovan reporting, and that is PM for this Tuesday. Sam Hawley has a new episode of ABC News Daily in the morning. I'm Linda Mottram, back with more PM tomorrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.